The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. So we're going to look in the Hebrews chapter 11 tonight at this whole matter of faith that ties into all this. And there are some marvelous people here in this chapter, both men and women. But I'll be honest with you, if we were to meet these people, these people of faith, we'd be disappointed because they're just like us. <laughs> and they were not great people. They learned to trust in a great God. That means there's hope for all of us. So let's look tonight at Hebrews chapter 11. This is known as the faith chapter, I suppose, as much as any chapter in the Word of God. And so let's look here at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to begin to read here in verse 6. We have a really uh, uh, conclusive statement. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is not possible to please God. Now, friends, how much of today please God? That is, how much was actually walked in faith? How much of the last 168 hours, that's the last week, by the way, actually pleased the Lord because it was lived by faith? This is an amazing statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And often what we do is we work our heads off to please God, and we don't even understand what faith is and how it operates, and we're actually not pleasing God. Because it's trusting God that pleases God. <laughs> so we need then to understand what faith is and how it operates, because without this dynamic called faith, it is absolutely not possible it's impossible to please God. Now, the flip side of that is with faith. Do you know it's possible to please God? Isn't that amazing? That while we still live in a sin-cursed body, while we still have that part of us that's not all new. <laughs> Last night we talked about the part that is all new. But we still have that other part that's not all new. Isn't it amazing that somehow through the cleansing power of the blood... When we get honest. And in the enabling power of the spirit that somehow it is possible to please God this side of heaven. And the access to that is faith. Amazing. And so it goes on to say without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God. There's your object of faith. Must believe that he is. That is that he exists. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And in that verse... Seek him as parallel to faith. Now, the rest of the chapter gives examples. Men and women. Jump ahead to verse 33. Here it says, who, referring to these men and women, through faith, skip two phrases, obtained promises. Now, there's a neat thought in that verse. A lot of times people look at the word of God and they read a promise and they get disillusioned and say, wow, that's not happening. But this says promises must be obtained. And the way we obtain them is through faith. So think, faith somehow is, a, is like a key that pleases God. It's like a key that obtains the promises of God. You not, don't need to turn there, but in 1 John chapter 5, the scripture says this is the victory. This is the overcoming that overcomes the world. Even our faith. 
So faith is this key that unlocks pleasing God, obtaining promises, overcoming the world, and so much more. So we need to understand what it is. We need to understand how it operates. There are times when we think we're exercising faith and we're not because we have a wrong idea, and down we go, and we crash and burn. I've had those moments, oh, man, where I thought I had it, and, you know, was trusting God, and everything falls apart. And it's not just a matter of timing. It didn't happen. Well, God didn't get it wrong, but I did. And so it, uh, it is one of the, those are the times that uh, should stir us onward to find out, okay, what is faith? How does it operate? And so tonight I want to speak on the key of faith. Lord, I pray that you'd breathe on us tonight, how we need you. Lord, we live in this world that you've created and yet has been so tainted by sin. And yet, Lord, we rejoice in the provision we saw last night. Yet, Lord, there must be an access by faith or we miss out. So tonight, give us understanding on what faith is and how it operates, that we might access the amazing provision that we've been talking about. Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus that was shed at the cross for the sins of the world, including us, to protect us from the attack of the enemy tonight who so seeks to misrepresent you to get us to be disillusioned, to get us off the pathway of faith. Lord, expose his lies tonight. Knock them out. And uh, Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you at the throne far above all principality and power. In your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder night and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord Jesus, may we see you high and lifted up as the object of our faith. And may we gladly respond with the faith response. We thank you now for it. Lord Jesus, Lord, may you in every way be honored by what's said and done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 1990s, I got to know a preacher by the name of Charlie Kittrell. He's now with the Lord. Did you ever get to know Brother Kittrell? What a blessing that dear man was to me. I thank the Lord for him uh, in so many different ways. I learned much from him. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, things that I, uh, I learned from him was just this whole matter that we're talking about tonight, the whole matter of faith. And uh, uh, he, would, uh, he would get to telling stories about God answering prayer and different things that God has done. And uh, he would tell me, now, John, call me. And call me often. And uh, so I'd call him, you know, and he would ask me about everything we talked about in the previous conversation. Because he'd been praying. <laughs> and uh, I miss this man. I really do. Uh, but you know, almost every conversation we had, he had some new, fresh answer to prayer. And some of them remarkable to the point of being stunning. Let me give you one of those just to help us understand. He said one time they were building a new auditorium and the construction workers had come and they had just poured the fresh cement for this new building. And as they were finishing up, uh, there was a dark line of clouds coming their way and heavy rain looked like it would be there any minute. And so Charlie Kittrell asked the construction workers, well, what will happen if a heavy rain hits this fresh cement? Because <laughs> it was that fresh. And they said, well, if it's heavy enough, it'll dimple it and it'll ruin it. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> so, Charlie Kittle slipped away to talk to God about it. Now, think, he doesn't have much time. 
was telling the Irmers yesterday, Brother Kittrell one time said to me, he said, you know, John, prevailing prayer doesn't have to take a long time. He said, it just needs to prevail. So he slipped away, and he comes back, and he confidently says to the construction workers, don't worry, it's not going to rain on that cement. And they laughed at him, assuming they were unsaved men, but they laughed at him. Now, anytime someone challenged God in front of Charlie Kittrell, <laughs> there was a surge within that man's soul. And uh, he uh, cried out to the Lord, Lord, you've got to vindicate yourself. And he said they watched that, that, that the line of clouds coming. And, you know, the construction workers were laughing, and they said, what do you mean it's not going to rain? Because, you know, it's right there. It's going to hit any minute. And uh, so uh, Brother Kittrell in his own heart was saying, Lord, you've got you to vindicate yourself. And he said they watched that wall of rain come to the property line. I think they had a number of acres there. And they said it stopped at the property line. They could see the wall of rain over there. And he said not one drop hit that fresh cement. I had another eyewitness on a different occasion give me the exact same details. Fascinating. You know, if I were to ask, can faith move mountains? Charlie Kitter would holler out, oh, absolutely. Many times when I preached, he'd holler out <laughs> and so forth. And I'm going to tell you, it can not only move mountains, he can stop storm clouds. But what's going on? What's involved in a story like that? Here's a regular man. I knew Charlie Kittrell. Uh, uh, he, was, he was not a perfect man. He was just like us. On some ways, almost rough as a cob on the outside. Kind of like an Elijah. So what happened there? And of course, God was glorified in all that happened. Well, as we've seen tonight, faith is like a key. And just as a key unlocks what would otherwise be inaccessible, this key of faith unlocks this whole possibility of pleasing God, this possibility of obtaining promises, overcoming the world, and so much more. So let's learn what faith is and how it operates. Tonight, let's just look at those two matters in the time that we have because we need to learn to use the key of faith. So let's begin by looking at what faith is. We'll spend the majority of our time there and then take a few moments to deal with how it operates. And I'm sure that'll expand as we move on toward tomorrow night. But uh, let's begin with what faith is. Let's begin with having a right conception, concept, a definition, defining sense of this matter of faith. So we're going to break it apart into some uh, details here so we can put together then a definition. First of all, the essence of faith is dependence. If we were to look the word faith up in its noun form or in its verb form, believe, it wouldn't matter if it's uh, looking in a Hebrew lexicon, a Greek lexicon, or an English dictionary, all of them are going to tell us that the essence of faith is trust, reliance, dependence, the verb form, to trust in, to rely on, to depend on. So that's the essence. In other words, right now we have a one-word definition, dependence. That is the core essence of faith. Now, dependence involves your entire soul. We saw last night your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. And uh, the, the soul, I often liken it to a triangle because you have to have, obviously, three sides <laughs> to have a triangle. And you have to have all three parts of the soul of man involved for there to be the actual exercise of faith. 
And that would be the mind, the affections, and the will. Now, let me move out of the spiritual realm where faith actually operates into the physical realm for the sake of illustration. Tonight, when you came in and sat where you're now seated, in a physical sense, you exercise faith. That is, you put your trust in the chair that you're now seated in. Well, let's get analytical. That means on the first side of the triangle of your soul, in your mind, you understood that's a chair. <laughs> that chair is made to hold the weight of human beings. <laughs> And so on. I know it sounds a little ridiculous, but obviously you understood that's a chair and it can hold you up. Well, the second side of the triangle is what we call the affections. That is where you allow what you understand to affect you. Another way of saying that is where you agree with what you understand. It's possible to understand something but disagree with it. Okay, to exercise faith, you have to understand and agree. In other words, you've got to be convinced. In other words, when you came in tonight and in your mind you understood, hey, that's a chair. Uh, it should hold me up. Apparently, you were convinced of it because I didn't see anybody checking it out ahead <laughs> of time to see if it was going to hold you up. No, you were convinced. But you know, if you'd have never sat down on it, if you'd have just stood there and said, you know, I believe the chair could hold me up, that would be easy believism on chairs. <laughs> that would be believing about the chair without believing in it, without depending on it. See, to get to real faith in the chair, you had to move past the intellectual understanding, past the heartfelt agreement, to that third side of the triangle of your soul, your will, your chooser, where you made a choice as you sat down. You put your weight down on that chair. That's dependence. So, the essence of faith is dependence. It is believing on, not just believing about. So, a second thought is the object of biblical faith is God. Let's move out of the physical realm back into the spiritual realm where faith really operates in the spiritual sense. Back in our text in verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. Obviously, to him refers to God. But then it says, But for he that cometh to God. See, the essence of faith is dependence, but the object of biblical faith is God. So we're no longer talking about a chair. We're talking about God himself. The object of biblical faith is God. So now we can just expand our word into our definition into a two-word definition. God dependence. That is faith at its corest understanding, our most core understanding. It is God dependence. Moody put it this way: the way to get faith is to know who God is. And friends, when we're all over the map in unbelief, it's because we don't know who God is. See, the key to faith is not us. This is wonderful. <laughs> if it was us, we're in trouble. The key to faith is not the subject of faith. That's us. The key to faith is the object of faith. That's God. And so we're dealing then with God dependence. Now, at this point, let me stop and interject something because in our world today, I find, especially in the realm of theological controversy, on the seminary level, <laughs> uh, there's a misunderstanding of faith. There are those since the Reformation uh, and down to today who have the idea that faith is a work. Because it's something a human is responsible for, they think it must then be a work. But God says it's not a work. For example, Romans 4, 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth. All right, so believing is the antithesis. It is the opposite of human works. 
And so there's an idea today that faith is, you know, uh, it, it, it's a work. No, that is wrong. And see, it messes up theology. And whole systems have been, been created because of that wrong presupposition by dear, well-meaning people. I'm not trying to be unkind when I say all that. But the point is, the Bible says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him. So believing on him is the opposite of human works. Faith is not a work. It is dependence upon the worker. You see, faith is a human responsibility. I can say it this way. It's a human response ability. But it's not a work because God says it's not a work. It's something man does, but it's not a work. It's saying, God, I can't. But you can. <laughs> and you cast yourself on God. You see, faith is not something God does. It's something man does. Because God is who he is. It's God dependence. And so we need to understand then faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. I mentioned the verse in uh, 1 John 5 a, a moment ago. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you know the song, Faith is the Victory? Okay. Obviously, that's based on that passage. How many of you know the song, Victory in Jesus? Okay, so which one is it? <laughs> Good answer. You see, it, it sounds like, well, wait a second. If faith is the victory, how can, you know, how, well, how is it victory in Jesus? Well, it's not a contradiction because faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker who is the victory. You know, remember in the Gospels, over and over again, we read that Jesus would heal somebody. I love those stories. I just love reading uh, the miracle stories of Jesus in the Gospels. And it'll say that Jesus healed this person. And then he turns around and says to that very same person, your faith has made you well. Now, wait a second. The text said Jesus healed him. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Not a contradiction. Because faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker, in this case, the healer. You see, it's coming into union. You cast your dependence on. You're coming into union with the object of your faith. When we're on the road, most of the time, we travel in a fifth-wheel trailer. Ours is parked a couple of miles from here uh, right now. And uh, when John Jr. was uh, quite small, I would come down the steps of the trailer and say, Hey, John, come on. And he would come to the top and jump. It was a true leap of faith. And you know, if I didn't catch him, he's going to hit the pavement. Now, what was he doing? Well, he was casting his dependence upon me as his object of dependence. And, of course, I'd reach out and grab him. There is a sense when we cast our dependence upon God. That's what we're doing. We're coming into union with our Heavenly Father where he reaches out his arms and we discover that underneath are the everlasting arms. You see, we're coming into union, as it were, with the object of our faith. And so, the object of faith, biblical faith, is God, God dependence. That brings us to a third concept tonight, as, or not concept, but a building block as we build our conception of faith. The basis of faith in God is the Word of God. Okay, so the essence of faith is dependence. The object of biblical faith is God, but the basis of faith in God is the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, so the basis or the object of faith is God, but the basis or the warrant for trusting God is his word. 
And there is an amazing oneness between the inscribed word and the incarnate word. Jesus is called the word in John chapter 1. So there is that mystery of oneness between the incarnate word Jesus and the inscribed word of the scriptures. But uh, in, uh, in technical analytical sense, the object of our faith is God, but the warrant for trusting God is his word. So now let's expand our definition into a phrase. It's God dependence based on God's word. Let's go to a, a fourth uh, idea here to build our definition. The foundation of the word is specific, not general. When the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it is interesting to note that there are two words primarily in our New Testament that are translated word in our English Bibles. One of those is the term logos. You've probably heard, how many of you ever heard the Greek word logos? All right, a few of you have, about half of you have. Uh, it's, a, it's a larger word. It is often referring to the entire word of God. For example, in John 17, when Jesus said, Thy word is truth. He says, Thy logos is truth. The other term that's translated word in our English Bibles is the term rhema. Some pronounce it rhema. But a rhema is a specific part of the larger whole. It can be as specific as one word. <laughs> It can be a phrase. It can be a sentence. We often call that a verse. It can even be a paragraph or a portion. The point is that a rhema is a specific slice of the larger whole pie. Now, when the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we might be tempted to think, well, it's got to be logos because we're supposed to trust the whole thing, and we are. But in Romans 10, 17, amazingly, it's not logos. It's rhema. And the significance of this can be life-changing if you'll let it sink in, and that's not an overstatement. That's telling us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the specific word of God. You see, the foundation for faith is the word, but ultimately the words. In other words, the foundation for faith is not general. It's specific. How did you get saved? Someone showed you words. Could have been John 3.16. Could have been the, some phrases in the Romans uh, road. But the point is somebody showed you some words, some rhemas, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema, the specific word of God. How many times have you been reading your Bible and you're in deep need and, uh, you know, you're reading uh, and this chapter goes by and then this chapter and then all of a sudden one phrase comes alive and God says, there's your answer. That's how it works. You see... It's specific. The foundation of the word of God is specific, not general. So now we can say, not just God dependence based on God's word. Let's pluralize that. God dependence based on God's words. <laughs> Where we take God at his specific word. Tonight we heard the beautiful music of great is thy faithfulness. That's a rhema <laughs> out of lamentations. What a book to come into. There's a book. There's all sorts of lamenting and uh, uh, just uh, uh, dismal um, articulation going on. But in the midst of it all, thy mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Words. Let's go to another thought. The specific foundation is real, though not in the sensory or physical realm. I could say it this way. The specific foundation is real, though unseen, unfelt. In other words, we could go through all the senses. This rhema of God, that is the foundation for our trusting God himself, his person, is very real 
though we can't see it, feel it, smell it. <laughs> in other words, it's not in the sensory realm. It's not in the physical realm. So, yet it's real. You see this in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance. The word substance there is not talking about a tangible substance like this pulpit. It's talking about that which is substantive, that which is real. So here's the idea. Faith is the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things. What's the last two words? Not seen. Look, so it's real, though you can't see it. It's real, though you can't feel it. And so on. It's real, though not in the sensory realm. So let's drop the concept of reality right into our definition. God dependence based on the reality of God's words. See, now you're moving beyond the black ink on the white page to the reality of truth that's connected to the words, the substance, <laughs> the reality. And yet, this is where we have the hardest time. I wonder what I would have done that day when that dark line of clouds <laughs> was coming. Because sight was, this cement's going to get ruined. Fascinating. You know, we all know the scripture. We walk by faith and not by sight. We know it up here. Do we know the reality of that? Isn't it easier to pray for a sick person when they still look good? <laughs> you know what I mean? But what about when they look like mm, there's not much time left? And we say we walk by faith and not by sight. Just recently, our family's been reading a book. We just finished it a few days ago called A Very Present Help, or A Present Help by a missionary by the name of Marie Monson. You can still find this on the Internet. Uh, she was a missionary in China in the 30s and 40s. God used her. She was the catalyst for the great Shangtung revival in the 1930s. Norwegian missionary lady. But all she does in this book is tell stories of God being a present help. The thing that I came away with more than anything else is when God spoke to her his word, it did not matter what sight was. She stood on it. She wouldn't do that if she didn't have the word. Forget the presumption stuff. That's when you crash and burn. <laughs> I've done that a few times. But when she had that rhema from God, I'm going to tell you what, she took it. And so she would defy sight. Sometimes when the other missionaries would say, you're, in essence, crazy. And I'm going to tell you story after story of this simple childlike faith and God delivering. God told her to take the trail from this city to this city when all the reports were saying it's infested with robbers, robbers and bandits. Every person's getting robbed without fail. Everyone, don't go. If God told her to go, she'd go. And she'd find out later about the angels that look like soldiers and that kind of thing, you know, to the Chinese and all this uh, kind of thing. Fascinating. We walk by faith and not by sight. I wonder how much we let the sight get in the way. God keeps dealing with me about this because often I'm looking at the sight instead of looking at the reality, regardless of what you see. The reality of his words. 
See, faith is not sight, and also faith is not a feeling. Now, we all know enough to say that, but isn't it easy to look for a feeling? <laughs> you know, Satan can counterfeit feelings. See, when the spirit bears witness with your spirit, that is not a feeling because that's on the spirit level. Feelings are on the soul level. Satan can counterfeit on the soul level, but not on the spirit level. When the spirit bears witness with your spirit, that's a knowing, not a feeling. Romans 8, 16, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, see, that we know, that we are the children of God, not that we feel like it. But often, if we're not careful, we look for a feeling. But the fact is, faith can operate totally opposite your feeling. Now, this is a wonderful truth, because sometimes, you know, we're thinking, oh, there's no rise, there's no, there's no feeling that God's going to do this. Okay, now, wait a second. <laughs> if we don't understand the real object of faith, we can get real messed up here. I was born on the western slope of the Rocky Mountains in Durango, Colorado. So, technically I'm a westerner. <laughs> but we moved when I was four years of age from Durango straight into the city limits of the south side of Chicago. I'm going to tell you that has meaning. <laughs> it has a lot of meaning. Well, we lived a couple of years in the city limits where you play ball on cement and mess up your pants and all that when you slide into third base on cement and all those kinds of things. Uh, but then we moved out to the suburbs. That was a little bit better. But it was still urban, suburban Chicago the rest of my elementary and high school years. So consequently, I am not a cowboy. I am a city slicker. That's just the way it turned out. But... Back in the 90s, when we hit the road in evangelism, uh, the church that my father used to pastor in Durango invited me to come out for a meeting. And while we were there, uh, some friends, they're now with the Lord. At the time they were living, they had a 3,000-acre ranch. And uh, they invited me to go horseback riding. Well, I'd heard of a horse before. <laughs> but I, I didn't know much about horses. I'd been on the back of a horse, but never really out on the range, whatever that means. So I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity. So I said, yeah, I'll go. But, you know, there was a nagging something in the back of my mind that was saying, you know what? You're a city kid. You're going to regret this. <laughs> well, <laughs> I went. That was a beautiful day. It was a nice, cool temperature and a blue sky. And uh, three of us were riding the head cowboy of that ranch and another cowboy and then me and and uh, they were showing me different parts of that property, beautiful Trout River going through the property and all the mountains. And we'd come around the bend, and all of a sudden, a whole new vista would open up, and there's the snow-covered La Plata Mountains and the San Juan Range. Just majestic, breathtaking scenery made by God. And then, as we were riding, we came to a spot where basically there was a narrow, <laughs> emphasis on narrow, ledge that kind of went around the curvature of the mountain. And that lead cowboy took his horse straight out on that ledge, which meant we followed. <laughs> now, when I got out on that ledge, I was suddenly aware of my environment, even though I'm not an environmentalist. <laughs> Forgive me for saying that in California. <laughs> You know, if I look to my left, there's the mountain wall as it continued to send upwards. I could basically reach out and touch it. That was somewhat comforting. If I could look to, when I looked to my right, there was nothing. <laughs> Unless you look down. <laughs> and it was steep. And there's the river at the bottom with the boulders. Well, somehow, we made it past that spot. Then we came to another spot where not only could you look to the right and see nothing unless you looked down, you could look to the left and see nothing <laughs> unless you looked down. So now we're on this ridge. And I remember thinking to myself, what are we doing? <laughs> well, somehow we made it past that spot. Then we came to a spot where it's still very steep to the right. 
And to my shock, that cowboy at the front took the reins of his horse to the right and started going straight down. He wasn't even cutting an angle. Straight down. That steep slope. It was so steep that the hind legs of the horse basically kind of tucked up under, and it was kind of sliding down, uh, you know, just lodging rocks and this and that. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? That guy's crazy. <laughs> Next cowboys, if there's nothing to it, reins the horse to the right. Down he goes. Hind legs of the horse tuck up under. Now we have two horses skidding on the slope. So I'm watching this. And obviously I am supposed to follow. You know, there's one old cowboy word that I remembered, even though it had been a long time since I lived in Durango, and I yelled it out for all it was worth. Whoa! <laughs> and when I yelled, and I mean I yelled, the horse, it's a well-trained horse, it stopped immediately. Well, the cowboy who's skidding down the slope in front of me looks up and says, John, what's wrong? <laughs> you know, I don't remember what I said, <laughs> but I obviously revealed that I was petrified. Now, he could have had a lot of fun at my expense, but he was kind. He said, look, John, just look, uh, loosen up on the reins. Who knows what I was doing to that poor horse. He said, loosen up on the reins, and the horse will take you down. You know, that's exactly what I was afraid of. <laughs> well, finally, I loosened up on those reins, and I depended. There's our word. On that horse to take me down that slope, which it safely did. But may I say that while I was in the process of dependence, my feelings were not in line <laughs> with my dependence. Fascinating. Do you know it's possible to depend opposite your emotions? Often we let fear move us off of faith. But what we need to understand is that you can exercise faith opposite your emotions. That's a wonderful thing to remember when you go soul winning. <laughs> Or when you have to face a, an unsavory situation, but you got to deal with it and so forth, maybe in the workplace and uh, so on. Look, faith is not a feeling. Now, you could describe my position of faith as clinging faith. I'm telling you what, I was hanging on for dear life. You know that thing on the front of the saddle, whatever it is, <laughs> that thing sticks out? Man, I'm hanging on to that. Now, the other two cowboys, they weren't clinging you could describe their position of faith as resting faith. In fact, when they go over the edge, they got these kind of lanky bodies, you know, somehow they just get in line with gravity, and, <laughs> and they rest on that horse to, to do what they know it's going to do. Now, it's not two kinds of faith. Faith is faith. Dependence is dependence. It's two positions of faith. Mine was clinging faith. You know what that is? That's when you depend against your emotions. So you're hanging on for dear life, but you're hanging on. You are depending. That's wonderful to actually understand. Resting faith is when your emotions get in line. So not two kinds of faith, just two positions of faith, because both are dependence. Now, you have to be in the position of resting faith if you're going to help someone else. That's the one cowboy helped me. You say, well, how do you get from clinging faith to resting faith? Well, in passages like Romans 5, where you have a progression of truth, and there it ends with hope, which is not our idea of wishful thinking, but the idea of confident expectation, there's your resting faith. You know what word precedes that? Experience. You know, when I got to the bottom of that mountainside, the thought actually went through my mind. Hmm, that wasn't so bad. 
I could do that again. <laughs> I didn't. But <laughs> the thought went across my mind. <laughs> ah. And see, once you trust God clinging and you trust God clinging and you trust God clinging, and you find out, you know, God always comes through. And there does come that time when you can rest. Ah. Uh, that's a wonderful truth. Resting faith. Friends, understand, if you are clean, it still is faith. So just keep trusting, and through experience, God will bring you to resting faith. Some of the men who wrote articles in the fundamentals, uh, like F.B. Meyer and some of these men, they would use this illustration. There's Mr. Fact, Mr. Faith, and Mr. Feeling. Mr. Fact, obviously, of course, is God based on his word. Mr. Faith, that's us. Mr. Feeling uh, is the third. Now, they said as long as Mr. Faith focuses on Mr. Fact. Eventually, Mr. Feeling comes along. But if Mr. Faith takes his eyes off of Mr. Fact and turns around and focuses on Mr. Feeling because he's warm and fuzzy, that's when you go down. And so uh, it's very important for us to keep our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. By the way, don't worry about the uh, ringtone there. I was preaching in Georgia one time, and somebody's phone went off. It's the best ringtone I've ever heard. It was, amen. (laughs) So uh, at any rate, no problem. Uh, Let's go now to one last thought as we define faith. You know, we're talking about God dependence based on the reality of God's words but you can't see them. You can't feel them. How in the world are you and I ever going to depend on the reality of what we cannot see? That brings us to our final thought to fill out this definition. It is the Holy Spirit who convinces us of the reality of God's words. Back there in verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. The word evidence means proof or proven. The verb form of that is used of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is, he will prove, he will convict, he will convince, proof. You bring that into the noun. It's convincement. You see, The Holy Spirit is the convincer. The word evidence is the noun form of that verb. Reprove, convict, convince. Evidence, convincement, it's proven to you. And the Holy Spirit is the convincer. Friends, that's why we need to recognize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because he is the one who convinces us those words are for you. And without that, it's wishful thinking. Without that, it's presumption. But again, when he convinces you, that's a knowing, not a feeling. Don't get it mixed up. And so it's a wonderful thing to recognize the Holy Spirit's involvement in all this. Looking unto Jesus, the author. Ah, see, the Holy Spirit convinces us. He authors faith by convincing us of the realities of the words of the living God. And so we can plug this into our definition. It's God dependence based on spirit convincement of the reality of God's words. Now, that's a gangly definition, I know, but it gets the pieces in. It's God dependence based on spirit convincement of the reality of God's words. You see, when that happens, recognize 
It's God convincing you so that faith then is a response. It is God that worketh in you both to will. There's the faith response and to do. There's God uh, carrying it out of his good pleasure. So faith then is the right response to the convincing work of the Holy Spirit. And God always responds to those who respond to God. (laughs) And as the Spirit convicts and convinces and says, there it is. Those are the words you need. There's the truth you need. Sometimes it's rooted in the character of God as opposed to a particular phrase, but it's still God based on truth. And there are phrases that, of course, give us that truth and so on. But uh, the reality is it's the Spirit of God speaking to us so that it's no longer wishful thinking. It's convinced confidence. And friends, when that happens and you cast your dependence upon God, you're coming into union with the will. Why? Because he's the one convincing you to trust. And the power of Almighty God. That's when you have God demonstrations. You know, God delights to demonstrate who he is. And it is faith that allows God to be demonstrated because faith is not a work. You know, sometimes we go through the motions and just in our human effort, we do this and do that. And, you know, in the human effort, we can, we can do things that look halfway decent and so forth. And, and we know enough to say to God be the glory, but down deep and we're thinking, you know, we pat ourselves on the back and think, you know, I really did a good job because it was just us. And that will be revealed at the judgment seat as it goes up in smoke. But when you know God spoke and you trust in God and God demonstrates himself, you know God did it. And that's when you can feel free to say, you know, God did this. You're not just faking it because we're supposed to say to God be the glory. You know God did it. So there's what faith is. Now let's move very briefly to what, how faith operates. And we'll just touch this long enough to be irritating. <laughs> uh, because this obviously is, is, is a vast, vast subject. But just to give us some idea about, on this, we move from what faith is, the concept to how it operates, or we could call it the exercise of faith. Um, it uh, uh, says... Uh, Uh, There in that uh, passage in Corinthians, for we walk by faith. See, exercise. We read here in this passage, uh, by faith Noah, verse 7, prepared an ark. Ah, So there was a step of faith here. Uh, Eight, Abraham uh, obeyed and he went out not knowing whether he went. The point is there has to be the exercise of faith. Otherwise, it's easy believism. Otherwise, it's just believing about without believing on. So a couple of thoughts then about this exercise or this walk of faith. First of all, walking, exercise, walking demands steps. That was deep, wasn't it? (laughs) But it's really a help. (laughs) Physically, we know that walking is reiterated steps. So walking by faith is reiterated steps of faith. The helpful part of this is it makes it just one step at a time because that's what it is. See, sometimes we get overwhelmed because we're looking at the whole macroscopic view and, uh, you know, Satan tries to get us off focus, sometimes focusing on our past, as we saw last night, and the the lie, you know, you've blown it, there's no hope for you, or focusing on the future, saying, well, you know, right now you're in this revival meeting, but give yourself two weeks, buddy, and you're going down, and all of a sudden we get a little fearful, oh, two weeks, I'm going down, and we're already on our way. (laughs) But, you know, if you presently trust He will presently enable. See, it's one step 
at a time. Walking by faith simply involves steps of faith. So that opens up the second thought. Steps of faith vary. And what determines the appropriate step of faith ultimately is whether or not the rhema is a fact or a promise. And you could add in a third category perhaps on covenant, but let's just keep it real simple for what we deal with most of the time. Facts and promises. Back uh, in the 90s, I was reading all sorts of stuff. Uh, I wasn't much of a reader until God began to change my life <laughs> with Revival Truth, and then I was reading all this, these authors and so on. And several of them said, you've got to know the difference between a fact and a promise. And I thought, what in the world are these guys talking about? Because generally, we call them all promises. And God used uh, Evan Hopkins <laughs> uh, to open my eyes to the difference. It's basically Grammar. Facts are dealing with what is. Promises are dealing with what will be. So future tense versus present tense, or in some cases something that happened in the past that has present ramifications, as in the verse that we saw last night. So the will be's and the shall be's, those are promises. That's simple. So when you're reading the scripture, when it says will be, shall be, that's a promise. But if it's a will be, that means it's not is yet. We get that? That's simple. If it's will be, it's, it's, it's somewhat out there. It may not be very far out there, but it's a slightly delayed because it's not is yet. It's a will be or a shall be. Okay, but the facts are the is's. Pardon the English. Uh, the are's. The realities versus the potentialities. That's another way to distinguish this. Promises are potentialities, and praise God for that. But facts are realities. Do you know when we're hit with temptation, we don't have time for a promise? I don't. If it's not already there as a provision, forget it. <laughs> Remember last night, the real you, that new creation part of you, that's already there. And it's still there. <laughs> See, that's a fact. And not just the real you, the real leader. We sang about it tonight, as Brother Luke pointed out. He lives within my heart. Lives, present tense. That's Galatians 2.20. Christ liveth, lives, is living right now. Not will live, is living. So let me ask you, would the first step of faith for a fact be to ask for it? Let me ask it to you, or let me put it to you this way. Do you need to ask for what already is? Wow. You know what I used to do? I used to always ask for what is. You know what that showed? It showed that I didn't believe that it was, that it was, <laughs> that it is. <laughs> this gets a little confusing. Uh, you know, when we ask for what already is, it means we don't believe it is. We're not convinced. Now, God's so gracious. We're asking when we should be taking and he says, you know, it's already there. Why don't you just take it? <laughs> and so you can get there. But you can save a little time if you understand that a fact is already there. Isn't that wonderful? Think of some facts. But he giveth more grace. He gives. Is giving. 
1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives. Which giveth? Who is giving us the victory? Wow. Now, if he is handing it out, is giving, then what would be the step of faith? Take it. There it is. We got it. That's the first step for a fact. The fact is already there, so take it. He is giving us the victory. Christ is living in us. He is giving mega grace. Therefore, take it and say thank you because you ought to be courteous. Discover the secret of is and therefore take so that you can discover the secret, secret of thank you and therefore took. I know that sounds really trite, but when someone gives you something and you take it, common courtesy says, thank you, which means you believe you have, in fact, received. That's why Paul said in the end of Romans 7, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Robert Delnay, the professor, pointed out the way you get out of Romans 7 and get in Romans 8 is to thank your way out of Romans 7. Take the provision. It's already there. I thank God through Jesus Christ. You know, if somebody handed, I remember a lady came to me and she said, well, how does this work spiritually? I said, well, physically, if I handed you a $100 bill, what would you do? I said, you know, this is a gift. Well, you take it. I said, that's what we're talking about. The only difference is, is what we're talking about is spiritual and that's physical. That's the only difference. So the first step is to take. Say, thank you. So that, that's not a mantra. It's just meaning that you actually believe you've received. But then you get to act on it. You know, somebody gives you a $100 bill, you take it, and you act on it. <laughs> well, that's simple. And in the same way, we take and then act. You know what I used to do? I would just act. You know what that was? Just me. You ever just gone through the motions? You know, there, you can go through the motions and produce the form of godliness, which means there is a form, but you can deny the power thereof. And when I would just act and go through the motions, it was just me. But when you take, now there's inflow. So that when you act, there's outflow. There's the life of Jesus. There's the difference. There's the difference. So here's the billboard on the highway that's the temptation to covetousness, addiction, impurity, whatever the case may be. And we can just say, thank you, Lord. And here's what happens. He frees you to act on it, to look the other way. Now get this, and be free from what you saw as if you didn't see it. Now it's one thing to just, just act. So your head's over here, but your heart's over there. Are you with me? It's another thing to take. Thank you, Lord. And you're free. Isn't that neat? That means you can go through the marketplace. Remember a dear friend of mine said, John, you know, today we were in the marketplace and he said there's stuff everywhere, but he said, you know, it's just wonderful to just take grace and be free all day long. Man, hallelujah. I grieve over the times when I don't take. Right there. He is giving us the victory and we walk away. Crash and burn. But friends, when you take, you're laying claim so that when you act, then he imparts life. You say, well, then what do you do for a promise? You just add one step on the beginning. You ask. <laughs> Unless there's a specific condition. But most of the time, it's just asking. For example, James 1.5, you ever need wisdom? Anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask. 
of God, who gives to all men liberally, generously, and upbraideth not without reproach, and it shall be. See, there's your promise, given. So, so there's a promise. In this case, you start with asking, but God says it shall be given. So you ask. That's the first step of dependence. God, I need wisdom. I got to face this uh, a situation at work tomorrow. Lord, I don't know how to handle this. God, I'm asking for wisdom. And here's what will happen. The Spirit of God will bear witness with your spirit deeper than your soul. It's not a feeling, it's a knowing. And he'll say to you, you got it. Or something like that. <laughs> Maybe not so much in the vernacular. But he'll say, you'll have it. At that point, do you need to keep asking? No. Because now he's giving it. So what's the next step? Take it, just like we saw with the fact, because now it's no longer a promise, now it's a fact. He's given it. Take it. And then you go forward in the confidence that it is being granted. Why? Because it is. He said so. Ah, that's how it works. Now, sometimes there's a specific con condition, like if we confess our sins. And the implication, here's what will happen, okay? So in that case, that would be the first step. And the moment you do... The blood of Jesus comes rushing in and cleans you up. So take the clean heart and go forward. But that's the idea. So we can claim these facts. We can obtain these promises by understanding that faith involves steps and steps vary. And it's really pretty simple. If God's giving, you just take and then you act on it. If it's a promise, you ask for it. When he gives it, you take it and then you act on it. Much more could be said, but that gives us at least an idea. One last thought. The step, in, uh, the step of faith involves, this is really deep. The step of faith involves taking the step. <laughs> the step of faith involves taking the step. In other words, one of the great deceptions is we acknowledge God can, but we don't depend on him too. It's the same thing with the chair. We acknowledge the chair can hold us up, but we don't sit on it. Okay, in the same way, unsaved people acknowledge that God can save them, but don't depend on him to do it. Saved people acknowledge that God can sanctify them, but don't depend on him to do it. <laughs> they acknowledge that God can empower them to witness, but don't depend on him to do it. And so on. You know that all the provision for you personally, for your own personal victory, what we would call holiness, all of the provision is based on facts. When it comes for the provision to impact somebody else, that's based on promises, like Luke eleven thirteen, and so forth and so on. So immediate temptation for us, the provision's right there. You need power for others, you ask, take, and act, and watch God work. That's how it works. Otherwise, we just acknowledge that God can without depending on him to actually do it. I mentioned sometime yesterday, uh, I guess in the Sunday school hour, about the outpouring of the Spirit and revival. Personal revival is built on facts. That's amazing. Um, when it comes to accessing Christ in you, he's already there. But corporate revival, God moving in the atmosphere, is all based on promises. If my people then will I, for I will pour water on him that is thirsty. I will pour out my spirit. Greater works than these shall he do. Whether Old or New Testament, they're all stated in the future tense. So, the first step 
to obtain the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit is what? Ask. Which means, if we don't pray for the outpouring of the Spirit, we don't believe in it. Now think. We believe God can send revival, but if you're not asking Him to do it, then you really don't believe in Him for revival. Does that make sense? And so we begin to see, ah, the simple steps of faith, they need to be taken. And friends, when God stirs us, we need to trust him. There are times when we, we, we don't see. I mean, the storm clouds are right there. But I'm going to tell you, when God steps in and says, trust me, I want to trust him. I've got much to learn, that's for sure, because there are many times when I just crash and flat burn. But I'm going to tell you, <laughs> Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But with faith, it is possible. So let's use this little key called faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a help to you, please feel free to share it on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.